Good morning, everyone. Uh, as Cam said, our reading this morning is Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Uh, and he, and you, you can find that on page 1814 uh, of the Bibles on the chairs there. Uh, or also on the screen beside me here. Uh, so Titus chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to the, their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an, an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who op oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Slaves, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to, tr to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Well, thanks, Lockie. And uh, before we jump into the details of this extremely helpful passage, and it'd be great to keep it open in front of you as we look at it together, uh, I just want to start by pointing out two risks I think we face as we look at a passage like this. Uh, the first risk I think is obvious uh, as we've seen in Titus already so far, uh, is a risk for people who love and knowing what the Bible says, uh, who enjoy learning, who understanding, uh, just love learning new things about God, uh, and uh, have a kind of a mindset that's great to think carefully and theologically about the Bible. Um, it's a great uh, great set of things, and this is for me, I think. Um, I love how interesting the Bible is, how thought-provoking it is. Um, here's the risk, if you like this. Uh, it's a good thing to be like that, but here's the risk. Um, for the whole Bible, but especially passages like this, the risk is uh, we enjoy uh, learning what Paul says to Titus, uh, growing in our understanding of key words uh, in Paul's ethical framework, but not being intentional enough that this passage is actually going to shape how we live. Not just our minds, how we think, but how we live. Uh, we've seen already in the first few weeks in Paul's letter to Titus, uh, from the very opening verses back in chapter 1, God's people are to grow in their knowledge of the truth, and that truth leads to godliness. Uh, not being clever, not being intelligent or well-read, uh, well uh, but godliness. Uh, last week we saw how the kind of leaders needed in churches are people who need to hold firmly on to God's word, not compromising or changing uh, the, the good news of Jesus, but also to be gripped by that word, uh, to be fundamentally changed and have lives impacted by the gospel. That's what kind of leaders uh, God is wanting in his churches uh, we saw as well at the end of chapter 1, uh, if you have that open, for those who don't hold on to God's word, uh, if they're not holding on to the truth firmly, um, despite their best efforts, uh, despite wanting to look spiritual and godly, have a look at the end of chapter 1, verse 16, at how Paul describes false teachers. It's brutal. Uh, he says, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Uh, let's not aim having uh, that on our tombstone. That's not a great kind of uh, sign-off, is it? Here in verse 1 of chapter 2, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. 
That is, Paul's telling Titus not just to teach sound doctrine, yes, teach sound doctrine, but also to teach what goes along with sound doctrine, which is how to live sound lives. So there's the first risk, uh, loving the truth of God's word, but not seeking to be transformed by it. Uh, Let's not do that this morning. The second risk I wanted to point out, it's not so obvious, uh, but it occurs to me that in 10 verses Lockie just read for us, it could sound like these are rules to live by that would somehow make us right with God. Um, If our assumption is the Bible's purpose is to tell us what we should do to please God, uh, we're going to end up in a bit of a strange place, a dangerous place actually. Uh, Because this passage is a risky one uh, to come with that mindset, because that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's very clear in this letter that the Bible's purpose is to tell us first what God has already done for us. Paul isn't telling us how to impress God by living this way or that way, or how to be good enough to be saved. He's telling us, when you know what God has done for you in Jesus, this is the way to live. So the risk is wanting to do right right things, but for the wrong reasons. Now, what would have helped uh, eliminate that risk entirely, actually, is if we just read on past verse 10. Uh, It's kind of my fault. Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2 next week. I wanted to save 11 uh, to the end of the chapter entirely for next week. It'll be a good week. It's a great section. Uh, Let me uh, just be brief and give uh, the critical summary of verse 11 onwards because it explains why our lives are to have the shape we've just heard about. So let me read from verse 11 of chapter 2. Read along with me. Uh, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, God's grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. See, God's grace has appeared. Uh, That's the grace of salvation freely offered in Jesus. Jesus, in his death on the cross, faced the full fury and wrath of God that we should have faced. Uh, Jesus loved us enough and spares us from that. And then in verse 13, we know he's coming again in glory. So what verses 1 to 10 are doing are explaining what it looks like to live in the in-between, where we're looking back to what Jesus has already done for us and looking forward to seeing him again. And when we know God's grace, when that grace has fundamentally gripped our hearts and we're changed by it, uh, we're changed by that reality that Christ would die for even me. Well, then you turn to verse 1 to 10 and what a life of transformed by grace can look like. Now, as Paul focuses on uh, various groups of people in these 10 verses, it seems he's picking up uh, particular temptations and struggles that uh, each group face. And he kicks off first with the older men. And so for the guys here wondering, well, am I a younger man? Am I an older man? Uh, let's just be honest here for a moment. If you even have to ask the question, you're an older man. I think it's probably, uh, probably fair to say. Um, Life expectancy in the Roman Empire, when Paul wrote this, was probably about 35 years old. Uh, so I guess you have your midlife crisis at about 17. That's uh, pretty, pretty unreal. Um, of course, plenty of people live past the average. Um, and so Paul probably has in mind those in their mid to late 40s and above. So Gen X, boomers, I'm looking at you guys. Uh, I'm not in that group yet. Um, verse 2, Paul instructs Titus, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Uh, The word temperate, that often refers to not drinking alcohol too much, uh, but it can be more general than that. I think it is more general here. It's about being level-headed, clear thinking. Uh, Alongside that, older men are to be worthy of respect. 
I think that, that key phrase, worthy respect, points out that they are to be visible and active in their communities, not, hot, not hermits, uh, hidden away, just uh, looking after themselves. Um, to be worthy of respect, it assumes they're taking responsibility in their communities and in their churches. Uh, they're leading. They're kind of people who have um, dignity and gravitas. And doing these things with self-control, that is not being at the mercy of their impulses in the way that older men in the culture around them would have been. Uh, we've heard uh, in our series so far of the reputation of the people on Crete, uh, where Titus is here. Um, if you look back at verse 12 of chapter 1, here's how one of Crete's own prophets uh, describes them. And you imagine what other people would have said about them. Here's what one of their own people says. Uh, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Brutal. So the older men of Crete, who know the grace of God now and have grown and have been changed by it, they grew up in a culture that was about excess, about selfishness, and about self-indulgence. Is it that different in Adelaide? culturally. Uh, for older men, uh, there does seem to be particular challenges and temptations that come along with age. For me, the most obvious thing that comes to mind is what Aussie men tend to aspire to towards retirement. Uh, after years of working hard, putting in uh, yeah, a lot of efforts to raise a family, shouldering a lot of responsibilities, uh, the dream for many men seems to be just dropping uh, all those responsibilities and running off, uh, endlessly traveling around, uh, indulging in the good life. Uh, perhaps feeling entitled and earned uh, by rights after a lifetime of hard work, just to put the feet up and to focus on self. Uh, the encouragement here, though, is to be temperate, not self-indulgent, and to be worthy of respect. Uh, that is, carrying responsibility for others in a noble and sacrificial way. Uh, the younger guys are watching on and are desperate for good Christian role models. Another particular challenge, I think, for older men seems to be not liking change um, or perhaps just not liking how other people, younger guys, are doing things these days. Uh, it's a common trait to find older guys who are grumpy, uh, just negative, resentful, a bit bitter, uh, perhaps mixed with stubbornness, uh, even arrogant sometimes. I don't know why people are laughing. <laughs> perhaps you know someone like this. Uh, older guys, there are particular temptations and challenges, and I think Often just being set in our ways uh, does make it difficult. Just being done with changing. I've changed, I've changed, I've changed. Now the world can change for me. Too bad if they don't. I'll just be bitter about it. You see here, there's a far better life shaped by God's grace, isn't there? It doesn't buy into the narratives that you deserve it, you should have it all. Uh, enjoy it, you've worked for it. Instead, it recognises how good is God. He has given me so much. How can I use it to serve others? How can I help lift up the community around me? Instead of the grumpy old man who makes life difficult for others, here is a picture of the elder statesman, the role model, lifting up, encouraging, urging others on. I see the end of verse 2. Uh, Titus is to teach the older men to be sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. These are the three great pillars of Christian life they are to be solid in, sound in. I've heard it said that as the years keep ticking on, older men, uh, you will need to be on guard. Uh, on guard against indifference to the things of God. After years, the, the gospel has taken on a sort of familiarity and a, a comfort, which is great, but to the point perhaps where deep truths kind of just wash over and don't grasp us like they used to. And love for God, uh, even as we express it, uh, might sort of wane and actually at a heart level, it might become colder. Paul's encouraging here that you'll need endurance. 
I think this assumes, actually, it might not get easier to follow Jesus. It might get harder the longer you go. So keep going. Uh, Never settle for a mediocre relationship with God or a that'll do approach to serving him or his people. For older men, uh, keep going. Uh, Keep coming back to the grace of God to fuel you all your days. And we actually need you to do that. Um, I'm not 100% sure of this, but it seems to me Paul starts with the older men first for a reason. Um, especially on Crete, but probably in every culture around the world, uh, the elder men uh, the older men, generally set the tone, don't they, for the culture around them. If they're growing in grace, uh, the rest of us, us youngies, uh, have something to model our lives on, and it's a great thing. And so I think um, it's right for us to thank God for the godly men, older men here at Tonsley, uh, those who are sound in faith, love, and endurance. You are a huge blessing to us all. Well, next, uh, Paul, in verse 3, turns attention to the older women. Likewise, he says, Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Now, Paul, of course, isn't assuming that older women uh, love to get drunk and gossip all the time. That's not the assumption for all people. But especially in a place like Crete, uh, there was idle time. Uh, and what do you fill it with? there would have been plenty of opportunities to drink to excess and to say mean things about other people, just for entertainment, to, get, to while away the days. Now, of course, uh, men can and do get caught up in this behaviour as well, but, you know, I have seen the types of magazines that are marketed to older women. Uh, most of them have splashed over the front covers, gossip, scandal, disgrace. Uh, there's an entertainment industry built up around this kind of issue. And so for the older women, uh, there is an encouragement to avoid that idle approach to life to avoid involvement or even just entertainment from tearing others down. Instead, um, being encouraged to be reverent, uh, which is a word sort of describing how hearts are to be lived, sort of fixed on God and his kingdom. You notice as well, instead of tearing others down, there is encouragement to be dedicated to building others up. Have a look at the end of verse 3. The older women are to teach what is good. Uh, So we see in verse 4, the younger women. Just like the older men who are to be invested in their communities, uh, the older women are also to be invested and have a special focus and a heart to reach, uh, to teach, sorry, or as verse 4 puts it, uh, to urge or encourage the younger women. Now, Paul doesn't describe how to do that, does he? Uh, It's not like each older woman has to sort of run a seminar every week or uh, I don't think it's just giving unsolicited life advice to someone you run into at church. Uh, There's got to be some things to work out how to do this. But I think the key is intentionality. Uh, being intentional to, to seek to share your wisdom, be, to be open with it uh, if someone asks. Uh, to share experiences, what your life of faith and with all the struggles has looked like. And to seek to serve the younger generation by helping them live godly lives. And I think we should uh, give great thanks to God for the way there are many older women here at Tonsley who are doing just this. Uh, you are such a blessing uh, through the way you are living reverent lives and encouraging others probably more than you know. I think one of the uh, ways this seems to happen is in our ministry teams. A lot of our teams have uh, generations mixing. Uh, the morning tea team comes to mind as a bit of a, uh, a great example with women from every generation mixing. And uh, I think just having a ball together, they seem to have way too much fun, uh, if that's possible. I sometimes stumble on the morning tea Slack channel, which is a sort of church communication tool. Uh, and the morning tea team, I just see all these heart emojis everywhere on the morning tea channel. It's amazing. Look at the setup pack up channel, not so much in the heart emojis. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> 
Um, but you see, as these relationships are growing in teams, as people are serving together, sharing life together, and it happens in growth groups as well, um, just as you're meeting together, sitting alongside uh, people from different generations, do keep looking for opportunities to share your godly wisdom and your encouragement. Verse 4, Paul describes what the goal of that sharing is and, and sort of what the teaching involves for younger women. Uh, from verse 4, Then they, the older women, can, te- can urge uh, the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to the husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, there's a few cultural things going on here. Uh, it's worth me touching on. The first thing to say is that arranged marriages were pretty normal across the Roman Empire. Um, and so it would have been pretty unusual for people to be single uh, uh, in, this, in this culture. Uh, so Paul's just assuming uh, that the older women will be training younger women uh, in the most likely setting they'll find them, which is within the context of marriage uh, with kids. I just want to say um, elsewhere in Scripture we see uh, 1 Corinthians 7 is a great example. Paul very highly affirming singleness. Uh, he esteems it highly, uh, which is to say it's not a prerequisite to be uh, married with children to be godly, not at all. Uh, it's just their cultural setting Paul was assuming here. Uh, here, uh, in these verses, we see whether single or married, uh, young women are encouraged to be self-controlled and pure and kind. Uh, I think kindness is perhaps one of the most underrated qualities in our world, uh, but so precious. And the word purity here, it probably uh, is pretty narrowly focused to some extent on uh, faithfulness in marriage and celibacy in singleness, would be assumed. But it also applies, I think, more broadly. Uh, seeking to be without blame in all relationships, such as how leisure time is filled up, and just, just having integrity in all parts of life. Um, the other thing to point out here is that culturally, most women on, uh, on Crete wouldn't have had employment outside of the home. That just wasn't a thing. Uh, but the primary economic unit, uh, the productive unit in society, was the household. Husband and wife are working together to be productive. And so the encouragement to be busy at home in verse 5, it strikes us as a bit odd uh, to modern ears, uh, but it's not Paul commanding uh, women to stay at home. That's not at all the case, that women should be staying at home, making dinner, doing the cleaning. Um, Paul is not prohibiting a meaningful career, a meaningful job outside of the home. He's also not suggesting that wives should shoulder the burden of uh, domestic chores uh, disproportionately. Uh, it's just that on Crete, culturally, the wives were at home uh, while their husbands went out to work. So I want to say more generally, this is an encouragement to not be idle, which is applicable, of course, for married people and for single people. For married women, uh, this comes alongside the encouragement in verse 4 to love their husband and their children, uh, if that is applicable. Alongside that, being busy at home, I think, is an encouragement to prioritise family life and well-being. Uh, That is, working hard together with her husband towards a relationally healthy and productive household. Um, Speaking of her husband, uh, my guess is most of you are curious at least uh, about the encouragement for young women to be subject to their husbands. Uh, Is that just cultural? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think the answer here is that's not just cultural, uh, and this is counter-cultural for us uh, without having time to cover all the ins and outs here. Um, I want to just take us through a summary of what the Bible says on this, uh, because the Bible is very consistent on what does sound backward to modern ears. But what we learn as we look through the Bible, what it teaches us about marriage and about gender, is that God's plan for marriage is far, far better than what our culture suggests should happen. So from page one in Genesis, we see God has created man and woman to be equal, uh, equal in value, equal in dignity, uh, and equal partners in the marriage. So equal, but also different. 
are different in the roles and responsibilities husband and wife are tasked with. Now, here in Titus, Paul doesn't explain what he means by being subject, doesn't give any examples. That would be very helpful if he did. Uh, But we can turn elsewhere to see Paul flesh this out a bit more. So if you're taking notes and want to look a bit more, Ephesians 5 is a great spot to go to see uh, more about this. Um, So drawing from places like Ephesians 5, I just want to say, first up, this is not about the husband dominating or wielding all the authority on every matter. That's not what Paul's saying. Uh, Instead, the husband is given responsibility spiritually for the family. The husband is given spiritual responsibility for the family. And it's a responsibility that he must take on on in a sacrificial, self-sacrificial way. The husband is never to demand submission, but instead to lovingly and caringly lead and encourage his wife in faith. And the husband has, I think, a very sobering uh, spiritual responsibility with accountability to Jesus for this. For spiritual well-being of their family in their service together of Christ and his church. Husbands are to take that role very seriously. And so in that dynamic, submission or being subject is about being led in the right worship and service of Jesus. That's the big picture stuff going on. It's worth pointing out some uh, ways you can't apply this. Uh, I think scripture gives us very obvious and clear examples where a wife should not submit to her husband, uh, such as if that submission somehow enables or promotes his sin, if it's a compromise of her conscience before God or relationship with Jesus, or if it puts her danger, it puts her in danger in any way. So the principle in verse 4 here, along with a priority of loving her husband and children, is an encouragement to not simply live out life with someone under the same roof, both pursuing selfish individual kind of dreams, but to work together in the service of God and his people. Uh, Like I said earlier, being busy at home doesn't count out a great, meaningful career for women, not at all. Um, We should be alert, though, that our culture, as far as I can tell, puts a very powerful temptation, particularly before women, uh, to seek meaning and significance and personal uh, fulfilment outside of marriage and in a career instead. Uh, Rather, we see here both husband and wife lovingly and sacrificially working hard together towards a relationally healthy productive household, serving God joyfully. So this is an encouragement for married women to commit to prioritise spiritual unity and well-being in the family, working together under the spiritual leadership of the husband to do this. Now, the obvious question is, what does that look like? How does that play out? Um, The Bible actually has an incredible amount of space to fill in the blanks there and to work out what it does look like will be different for everyone. Interestingly to me, uh, the experts, the young women are supposed to seek for wisdom in this. How does this play out? How do I do this? The people you ask to seek is not Titus, it's not Paul, it's not even me uh, as your pastor here. It's the older women. Uh, The older women are investing in you in sharing their own wisdom and experience. See that sort of modelling here. uh, To seek how this plays out in practice, the older women are to train the younger women. As a kind of final note on this particular point, if you'd like to think more about this, including perhaps what it means to be married to a non-believer, can I encourage you to go back and listen to some sermons on our website from 1 Peter. Uh, Paul Harrington uh, preached some uh, really helpful sermon uh, on that particular topic. Uh, And there's a Q&A with his wife, Sue, after the the, um, sermon, also on our website, uh, which goes into far more detail about this. And I think it's a very helpful place to go if you'd like to think further. Well, there's a lot there for young women. Uh, And as you turn to the young men, it seems like it's far simpler. Have a look at verse 6. Just gives the encouragement to uh, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. One thing. Uh, They seem to get off lightly here. 
Now, I don't think, though, that Paul is assuming young men have it all sorted out apart from one little thing. I think it's the opposite. I think it's for young men, all of our many struggles, you know, I'm including myself and the young men here, just sneaking it in, uh, all of our many struggles and failures often come back to one big thing. It's a lack of self-control. Um, I've heard it said, and I think this is right, a lack of self-control is the greatest enemy of Christian living. A lack of self-control is the greatest enemy of Christian living. Because um, here, self-control is not just about holding off from another slice of cake, it might include that, but it, it's far bigger. Uh, self-control needed, to, just think about the self-control needed to get out of bed every day uh, to read the Bible and to pray early enough uh, to have good time to do that, or going to bed early enough to do that, to have time in prayer and Bible. Uh, as, a, as a really young man, I was, I was absolutely terrible at this, managing my like, sleep hours, was just not, uh, I wasn't disciplined, didn't have no self-control. And most of us will have experienced what happens when we go for stretches of not spending time in the Bible and in prayer. Uh, It handicaps, it cripples our Christian growth and our desire to know Jesus and to share him with others. Or consider how self-control plays out with alcohol at a work function. If you get carried away, it can totally undermine our witness about Jesus, can't it? Or not having self-control when it comes to pornography or sexual temptation causes devastation in marriages and poisons and distorts heart and mind. We're not having a self-control to push back on being super ambitious in work and study uh, to the point where we're you know, too busy to meet with other believers. Or perhaps for those who are married, uh, we let our ambition in work come before how we love and serve our families. Not having self-control in finances, like where we find ourselves compelled to have all the shiny things our peers have, which means generosity becomes an afterthought. And if we've just heard, wives are being encouraged to submit to the spiritual leadership of their husbands. Us married men really need to make sure we're taking self-control seriously, don't we? Uh, growing in self-control, it's, it's so important, not just for young men, for everyone. It's actually a common thread you see all through this chapter. But for young men especially, the pathway to growth and maturity must involve self-control and working on that. But drinking, ambition, finance, sexual temptation, leisure time, you can write a very long list. I just want to say, if you find yourself out of control in these areas, uh, be encouraged by the grace of God to change course. God's grace frees us from being caught up in these ways and being stuck in them. And we should all be encouraged that we can change. Because Paul wouldn't bother to encourage us in self-control if it wasn't possible. What would be the point of that? It's a waste of ink. So it's encouraging. We can change. And notice verse 6, the young men uh, will change through the encouragement Encouragement of others. It's not through willpower. Uh, it's not through just trying harder by yourself in isolation, but one another, one another, sharing our struggles with one another, actually talking about how we're going with Jesus. And having others encourage us to keep going, to keep growing and keep coming back to God's grace. In verses 7 to 8, we see how important it is to have role models, uh, those who set an example for us to follow. It's critical, isn't it? And a note on that, I suppose, is that for leaders in churches, um, how important it is to be a role model. And for those who are leaders here in any of our ministries, uh, for, or for those who will be taking on leadership uh, in different ministries in years to come, notice how Titus is to encourage the young men, verse 7, in everything, pretty universal, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Very general. Clearly, uh, Titus isn't just to say stuff, Uh, We covered this topic in more depth last week, but as a brief summary, it's not enough for leaders just to say true things about God. 
We need to be following Jesus in all we do and have that commitment in our own lives first. Well, as he goes on, Titus is told that as he teaches, he should show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech, which is to say the holiness of God's people matters too much to be flippant or careless in what leaders say or what we do. Well, a final focus on this section is on those who are slaves. Um, By the way, Paul isn't saying slavery is a good thing. Uh, In fact, I'd say Paul's teaching about human dignity, uh, about the equality of um, slave and master in God's eyes. Actually, eventually, uh, Paul's teaching is what led to the collapse of slavery uh, in Western Europe. But as Paul writes this, the social reality simply was that millions of people were slaves in the Roman Empire. So he's speaking to those people. Um, Some were in domestic and farm work, others were teachers, managers, civil servants. Uh, Slavery was a pretty broad term. And actually, it means for us, um, this section does help us think about a life touched by grace and how that plays out in the workplace. Um, Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they'll make the teaching about God as saviour attractive. Uh, Notice here it's got no mention about um, how much the slave might like their master or how well they get treated. Uh, The idea is having integrity, getting the work done no matter what the boss is like and trying to do that without grumbling. Try to make your boss's work life easier, uh, not harder. Instruction here to not talk back, I don't think that's literally don't say anything. It's that attitude, isn't it? Uh, Good master or not, show them the respect and don't pinch from the stationary cabinet. See, you can be incredible witnesses in your workplace. You can be a great witness to the grace of God in your life because that's hard to do without grace. It's impossible to do without grace. And so people who know grace will look very different to those around them. We've all had uh, bad bosses, I'm sure, from time to time, but bringing integrity that comes from knowing God's grace uh, it will be unique. And people will be watching, even when you think they're not. And actually, that's the thing that links these 10 verses together here about what happens when our lives are genuinely transformed by grace. Uh, other people notice. It'll make a difference as people look on. So have a look. I was going to skim through three verses here. Now have a look at the end of verse 5. We'll see the theme. All these things so that no one will malign the word of God. The end of verse 8. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And the end of verse 10. So in every way, they will make the teaching about God our saviour attractive. The repeated theme here is that God's grace in our lives, not our willpower, not our ethical code, God's grace being evident in our lives will shut up those who would love to accuse us of doing something terrible. It will show that God's word is precious and it's good to those wondering about it. Perhaps most of all, lives that are gripped by grace will make our saviour attractive because it changes everything. It really matters, doesn't it? So let's pray. Lord God, thank you that your grace has appeared in Jesus. Thank you that you change us by your spirit. And that as your grace trains and teaches us to live godly lives, uh, others are watching on and seeing something about how wonderful you are. So please help us, help each one of us. Um, We all have growing to do. So please rightly convict us of what needs changing. Please also rightly offer assurance and comfort that our failures are never too great for your grace. So please help us to live lives that make your gospel of salvation attractive, compelling and beautiful. That gives us great joy and peace and productive service as your people, we pray.
Amen.